Hello, welcome to the Greater European Talks by Internationalism at the Institute for Greater Europe. My name's Jamie. Today, I'm here with Philippe. Each week, we look at a different region of Greater Europe, trying to analyse interesting aspects from some of these regions. This week, we're going to be looking at Russia and Eastern Europe. Throughout this week in Eastern Europe, there have been multiple demonstrations. In Ukraine, thousands took to the streets as part of International Women's Day. Today, thousands have taken to the streets in Moscow to protest controversial new RUNET law. This concept created by the... Uh, Federal Duma, is trying to establish a so-called sovereign internet for the Kremlin, which will allow them to monitor certain events within the country as well as shut Russia off from the outside world. This is obviously problematic for democracy activists in the country. In Ukraine, similarly, there were also demonstrations during uh, last week on International Women's Day, where thousands of feminists took took to the streets to oppose gender inequality throughout the country and certain limitations in profession. However, in this week's episode of the Greater European Talks, we are going to focus more on the international prospects for Russia, looking at areas that it's trying to exert its influence, both in neighbouring countries and further abroad. So to start us off, um, Philippe's going to give us a little uh, introduction, I should say, about um, the kind of difficult relationship between Russia and Belarus. Philippe. Sure. Thanks so much, Jamie. So uh, an interesting thing that happened beginning of January 2019 this year was some controversial statements about the unification of Belarus and Russia. Now, while this might sound pretty crazy to begin with, it's nothing new. And actually, in 1997, the two countries signed a union treaty to potentially unify the countries into the union state of Belarus and Russia. However, the enthusiasm for it dropped away quite quickly. And so whilst it does exist and the treaty and the union state do exist, it's nothing as formal as what the original ideas were for. Now, Lukashenko, the uh, leader of Belarus, commonly quoted as the last dictator for his 25-year reign in uh, Belarus, had to come out in the open and state there was no plans for unification. Yet, the same messages are not being found in the Kremlin. Vladimir Putin mentions quite often how the relationship between Belarusians and Russians is so close, they might as well be the same state. Yet many Belarusians do not necessarily want this. What's the most interesting here is just another development of the back and forth that uh, President Lukashenko faces when it comes to his reign in Belarus. See, Belarus is so closely tied with the EU oil market that it cannot threaten that. But it's also incredibly closely tied with the energy market in Russia that it cannot do anything but leave. So this locking together, I think we can clearly see is another example of uh, Russia keeping its hold on a territory nearby, especially as one of Russia's only Western allies. Belarus is vitally important. And the real question here is, where is it going to continue? When Lukashenko, if he ever steps down, how will the situation develop? And does this union state really mean anything in the contemporary world? Those kind of the questions we're being faced with uh, beginning of 2019. Thank you, Philippe. So You've obviously asked a lot of interesting questions there. One of the aspects of this relationship that I think is particularly interesting is how almost a union between these two countries, an official and proper union, could serve as for the domestic audience of propaganda, as we understand that the Kremlin does use external affairs to feed its own uh, media narratives at home. Mm-hmm. And I think in that sense, it should be quite an interesting, it, or it could be a potentially useful avenue for the Kremlin, perhaps as a diversion tactic. So you can imagine we've got the Kremlin joining in brotherly compatriotship with Belarus, blah, 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 and all the kind of facets mm-hmm. of that. And that could in turn actually just provide quite a lot of distractions from other issues in Russia. And I think that's probably one of the things I think 
could be particularly or could make this unification happen. Yeah, and another uh, interesting point, not just to that, is that the potential union state of Belarus and Russia would need a new constitution. Mm. And interestingly, would need a new president. Mm. Now, some are considering this perhaps another way Putin can extend his term limit in Russia, as, of course, we know his tactic of uh, becoming prime minister uh, for a couple of years to then regain control of the presidency. But a potential union state with Belarus and Russia creating fundamentally a new country would completely divert the uh, term limits themselves, much as we've seen in the Caucasus, where the restoration of sort of a parliamentary to presidential democracy allowed some of the more mainstay politicians to stay on for longer. And there's no doubt it would also be used very much in the irredentist Russian nationalist movement saying we are Russian or we are Soviet Putin himself, you know. If you don't miss the Soviet Union, you have no heart. If you wanted to come back, you have no brain. So it's all just uh, another line of that, really. Absolutely. I think uh, it is difficult to tell whether that will be used as a kind of constitutional loophole, because I imagine that they could find another way of doing that. Also, I'm not 100% sure if Putin wants how much longer he wants to uh, extend his presidency. I only say that because I read um, an interesting book by Mark Galliotti, who is a leading uh, professor on Russia in general. And his book's called We Need to Talk About Putin. And actually, I'd recommend it to anyone listening to this because uh, it's really interesting how he gives a very kind of good understanding of Putin and analyzes his behavior. And it seems that perhaps Putin is actually a bit fed up of his current role. And much like Lukashenko, like you said, 25 years of power, these guys have amassed large amounts of wealth in this time, they need to, you know, I guess, enjoy that wealth. And perhaps a union and a new constitution could provide at least Lukashenko a way out of his presidency. Out, yeah. Which is Mm -hmm. interesting. And I guess in that sense, if Putin could find a solid replacement in whom he trusted, then in that sense, perhaps that could lead to a a new head of state for both countries and kind of, you know, free both of them from their uh, dictatorships. (laughs) Interesting point. I had I never thought of it as sort of a way to freedom. Almost ironically, there's no from what I've read, there's no real signal that Lukashenko wants to step down. Though that's for sure. Yeah, uh, he's kept a pretty repressive regime up. Uh, he's it's a one party state, of course, and you know the main block. The, the main block to this isn't just Lukashenko though. It's Belarusians themselves. Mm. Uh, there is actually not a lot of appetite in Belarus for yeah. union, and even in Russia, there's not a huge amount of appetite for either. It's a kind of, yeah, as I mentioned, irredentist claim from back in Soviet times that doesn't quite exist anymore. It's not really something you found mirrored in the media mm. in Belarus or the people in, in Belarus. They're quite content with the level of uh, cooperation they have right now. So it is very much a hypothetical now, but the fact it's been brought up almost 20 years after it was first signed in almost a threatening manner. Mm. This came right after some gas crises in uh, late 2018 where um, Lukashenko annoyed the Kremlin by um, cutting off a few of the the lines into Minsk, Mm. whereby a pretty bad response by Putin led Lukashenko to go to the Kremlin, bring Christmas gifts of sacks of potatoes, and um, apologise for all the wrongs they've done. So I would see this more as um, possibly a Crimea situation, a threat being potentially posed, where Russia could say, well, we have a union, we have a treaty, Mm. Here's the clock. What's happening? And potentially try and find a way to 
manoeuvre themselves into the political space in Minsk, rather than, as you suggested, a peaceful transition, which I would love, but I'm far too much of a cynic, I believe, to uh, think that. Yeah, my, my only issue with the Crimea comparison is that there's not really that ethnic aspect to it, which was key. That's true, that's true. But, yeah. um, and also, I think the other issue is that because Ukraine was actively turning towards the West, I mean, not as politicians, obviously, but through the whole kind of Maidan revolution, that was a sign that we want to step away from Russia. In mm-hmm. Belarus, there's a, the basically everyone's pacified. I mean, they, the entire kind of public is pacified and doesn't really have much interest in what's going on, doesn't have much voice. And if they are going to get involved, then they're going to get shut down hard by um, security services in Belarus. So in that sense, I don't think the Kremlin's going to be worried about Belarus. I don't think they could, like you said, they're locked in to both sides via oil and uh, natural gas. So I don't think they're going to go anywhere. Whereas Putin and the Kremlin, with that kind of post-Soviet complex, sorry, the Soviet complex now in the post-Soviet space is kind of, they view that area as their kind of rightful area. And in that sense, um, I think they'll be a bit more relaxed to know that Belarus is, you know, willingly not Western, whereas Ukraine was trying to become more Western, which for them is like a big no-no, obviously. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I definitely think time will tell whether this actually becomes a serious issue or whether it's kind of just a bit of a spat. And it is mm-hmm. good. I mean, and also from a, a slightly more cynical perspective, it's a nice little media kind of hype storm. You know, the media love this kind of stuff. There's always a lot of speculation about Putin because it's interesting, but a lot of that speculation is, you know, probably driven by need to post articles and make money. So it's, it's hard to, to work out unless there's kind of the Kremlin sees some kind of political power from it. I mean, I guess it would push the, uh, the border of Russia forward and closer to the West, which it could see as some kind of strategic thing. Very true. And let's, and let's not forget the, um, when we're looking at uh, NATO's position, yeah. that cross across Kaliningrad, uh, that straight between Kaliningrad and Belarus is one of the key locations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a tiny, tiny few miles that Lithuania has. If that's cut off in a potential conflict, that can devastate NATO forces. So yeah, that's kind of the point from Belarus. And um, yeah, we'll end on those interesting bits there. So, Jamie, should we move on to... So now we're going to move on towards Africa, which is becoming a hotspot for um, Russia and many other states who are trying to solidify their economic interests in on the continent. There's been multiple reports, a particularly good one in the Financial Times, um, about the multiple various forms of investment that Russia has recently launched in Africa, um, from nuclear power to oil research. There's all the way now to something called PMCs, private military contractors. Private military contractors are one aspect of Russia's um, involvement in Africa, and they play an extremely diverse role in fulfilling multiple foreign policy objectives. So in this sense, PMCs are a kind of multi-purpose deployment force. They can be used as uh, fighting forces, as has happened in Syria or Libya, to actually actively back up militants of a given side to win military battles. They can also serve as a presidential guard, if you like, which is what the case is in Sudan. So they're working with the Sudanese president, directly protecting him from threats, as well as training people to, uh, or training his own troops to have a high standard of military ability in order to protect him from threats. As a dictator, obviously, there's going to be threats. In addition to that, they also play, and this is something that hasn't really been reported on, 
but a role in kind of monitoring what is happening in Africa. Because that, in that sense, they kind of serve as an espionage wing. And it's quite interesting how that is actually a, a kind of an additional kind of bonus to whatever other options or whatever other things they're doing there. They also get all the intel of what's happening on the ground. Another thing that they are, that PMCs are being used for, is actually something to do with, demographically speaking, they are a great outlet for a large portion of young testosterone-fueled men in Russia who have no life prospects because the Russian economy is stagnant. And they are also, you know, filled with, you know, masculine, um, uh, masculinity-driven kind of ideals. And they want to kind of, you know, go and fight for their country. And, you know, yeah, they want to go and fight and be patriotic. And these are a great way of getting these people out of Russia. Because you imagine if you've got 10,000 young men, all of whom are either already showing signs of violent behavior or just really disillusioned with the current way their country's going, which is the case for some people in Russia, then it's a way of kind of getting them out of the country and making use of them and also making money out of them. It's one of the most effective ways for the regime to increase its um, income through a variety of things. Most interest or the most important thing when analysing PMCs, I believe, is to to understand where and why they're being deployed or why they're being deployed where they are. I can ask. Uh, so, who, who's controlling these PMCs? Is it the state or is it private companies? So, it, it sounds like it should be, but from what you're trying to say, they the state has quite a strong role in this. Absolutely. So, the the key thing is, as a private military contractor, you are a private organisation, a private corporation. Sorry, and that the most infamous of these groups is the Wagner Group. And that has been shown, proven, and I've seen evidence of it myself, that that is connected to a man called Yevgeny Prigozhin. Yevgeny Prigozhin is basically a... He's been named the Putin chef for owning a restaurant in Moscow, which was attended frequently by Putin and his inner circle. But he's basically the classic kleptocratic member of the inner circle who has no official affiliation with the government. However, a report by Nové Gazeta, which is an amazing... Um, independent outlet in Russia, showed Yevgeny Prigozhin attending a security brief in Libya, or no, in Russia, on a discussion with Libyan officials alongside other members of the Russian government. His position or his invite is obviously based on the fact that he owns the Wagner Group. This means what is actually happening is the kind of murky and unclear connections that are availed by using PMCs as opposed to a traditional state army, which you can't hide really, unless it's the SAS, then that is actually being used as a means to realise the Kremlin's goals. But um, yeah, so I think it, it's the the tricky thing about PMCs is that they are basically, and if you understand that all business that happens within Russia is to some degree subservient to the state, and this obviously, this money is coming back yeah, to Russia, enough. it is effectively a state operation. What is currently unknown is... There's what no- interconnections it has with official state bodies. Um, and I, when I say it's, that isn't known yet, it's not in the public sphere, as I understand it. Um, and the final thing that really needs to be talked about with PMCs is their intimate connection to various natural resources, be that oil or diamonds or gold. PMCs will be in states where basically their services, either as a military force or as a training force or as a presidential guard force, can be exchanged for a portion of the output of a given um, Uh, natural resource. So those are the key kind of things that we have to understand. And that helps us understand where they're being deployed and why they're being deployed. So you mentioned, obviously, 
the fact that you can't really have private companies necessarily in Russia, considering to be very successful, you'd have to be somewhat subservient to exactly. the state. So, are there any interesting cases where a PMC has acted in Russia? Uh, sorry, a PMC has acted in Africa against the interests of a Russian state, or is it such an understudied topic at the moment? Because it sounds, you know, not many people are aware of the threat or what PMCs really do. No, so um, I definitely think that people don't fully understand them. However, I would say the last month there's been a slew of articles that have come out that have talked about this, and it's definitely kind of getting on the agenda a bit more, which is a positive. Um, in terms of conflicting with Russian national interests abroad, I would say actually that PMCs are deployed alongside Russian military forces. This is happening in Syria. Yeah. And um, in fact, in that sense, yeah, they are yeah. they are only really used, but they are used as a supplement or replacement to state forces, um, which is obviously not good because they have even less accountability than a corrupt regime's army does. And and also, I mean, as we saw with American use of PMCs, things can quickly get out of, out of hand. Yeah. So, and yeah. It, I mean, it's, it's but, part of the developing kind of concept of what the military is. And PMCs, I think, are going to become a factor, especially for America, because you know what they're like with their private military contracts um, in general. And the and British for that matter. Yeah, exactly. But um, the British and French. And I mean, they their military lobbying industry is massive, so you can understand why that could develop, especially if it's going to go down a kind of Trumpist version of capitalism, which is heavily privatized. So um, yeah, definitely something to watch in the coming months. So that concludes. This week's episode of the Greater European Talks, brought to you by Internationalism and the Institute for Greater Europe. I'd like to thank Philippe for their questions and discussions today. Uh, this is obviously the beginning of the series, so we're going to hopefully try and improve it, and and hopefully we'll see you again next time. Thank you. Bye.